Hey, I'm Brett. And I'm Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And brunch. (laughs) Brett's favorite meal. Oh, it's a terrible meal. (laughs) I mean, mimosas. (laughs) I don't need to say anything more. That's our pull quote for the episode. I mean, mimosas. (laughs) And mimosas. Welcome, everyone. We made it to our second episode, guys. I wonder how many people made it with us. <laughs> I mean, we're having fun, right? I mean, I think my mom listened. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good, that's a win. That's a win. I don't know if my parents know what that podcast is, to be honest. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about vertical farms. There's a lot of money that's been going into this space. Some big names like Bowery Farming and Arrow Farms. But Brett, I keep on hearing a lot of skeptics out there. Can you give us the bull and bear case for them? Yeah, I think the skepticism from around vertical farms really comes in that in a vertical farm, you are having to pay for one of the most important inputs into the plant world that outdoor farmers don't have to pay for, which is the sun. The sun is plays an integral role in farming. And when you move something inside, you're now paying for the energy and the lighting associated with helping those plants grow. And that's really quite expensive. The flip side and the flip side of the argument are you're in a controlled environment where you can literally control and feed the right amount of food, the right amount of water, the exact amount of lighting. So you can really control the outcomes. You're not worried about weather. You're not worried about bad crops and busts. The final piece on it is that you also don't have to worry about the logistics and transportation. When you can grow close to metros or population centers, uh, you don't have to move the food from Yuma, Arizona to Minneapolis, for example. You're now reducing that shipping and logistics cost, which also reduces a lot of food waste. That brings us to our question of the week, which is, are vertical farms a need or a want? Our guest today says the world will run out of food without the help of vertical farms. He's the co-founder and executive chairman of Plenty. It's a soft bank-backed company which aims to build 500 indoor fully automated farms in major metros around the world. That's a crazy goal when you think about it, because there's only like several thousand vertical farms in the world today. So when you're talking about adding 500, that's an order of magnitude to the space. And so it's, it's a big change. And they're building their second one now. <laughs> but he says it's iterative, right? Fascinating interview, Matt Barnard, and really excited to, to listen to him. But first, a look at some of our hot topics trending in food and innovation. First up, Clara Foods, one of the first companies to make proteins using fermentation, is launching its first animal-free egg product. It's called Clear Egg, and it'll be used to give a tasteless protein boost to hot and cold beverages as well as snack bars. Your take, Brett. I mean, it's really on trend with a lot of food innovation right now, which is how are you getting protein from alternative sources that aren't traditionally grown through animals through the traditional ag path, right? You have more animals in this case, more eggs, lay more eggs, grow more animals, and then have to use, go through that whole supply chain of feeding them, growing them, food loss, transportation, logistics, but still giving you that protein shot that people really want. And so it's it's really on trend in the food and innovation space. I'm not so sure about the name and dropping a clear egg in my coffee though. Yeah. Well, that brings me to the fact that the company is rebranding. Its new name is The every company, Steph, you are our marketing maven. What do you think about that? Because it seems like a lot of these food tech companies change their names. I can think of three or four that have done that. 
I think rebranding is actually really fairly common, particularly in the startup world, because you change as a company as you continue to grow. And so what might have made a lot of sense, especially internally to you as your name at the very beginning, doesn't have the same value, doesn't express the same value about your product or your company as rebranding. I mean, Brett knows this firsthand. We just, we rebranded the syndicate fund to Bread and Butter Ventures because it meant very different things as our fund continued to grow. Hot tip, never ask Brett to name anything. Branding is not my strength. Um, I'm not going to lie. You helped to to brand our show though. You helped come up with the name of the show. That was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if, if you give a, what, a thousand monkeys a typewriter, eventually they're going to write Shakespeare. <laughs> that was your one-off. Yeah, pretty much. According to Steph. <laughs> well, we cover the egg, now the chicken. Purdue Farms is expanding its pasture-raised program by unveiling its solar-powered mobile chicken coops recently. The company says the coops are floorless and through a solar-powered engine, these coops move 50 feet a day, allowing the chickens inside to have a fresh patch of grass and nutrients to feed on. That seems pretty innovative. Brett, is this a good example of a big food company innovating because of the changing consumer demands? I don't know if it's because of the innovating because of changing consumer demands. We looked at an early-stage startup four years ago now that pitched us this concept and we got really close to investing in it. We didn't end up doing it. What was really interesting to us about the concept was actually it took a concept that is hundreds and hundreds of years old in agriculture, which is contract farming and produces, hey, farmer, you have extra space, extra land, but you don't want to make the capital improvements to it to be able to grow more fill in the blank, in this case, chickens. Um, what if we give you a solar powered coop and you just farm it for us? We guarantee that we'll purchase those chickens that are grown. We'll help. We'll potentially even help you with the feedstock or getting it started, the livestock to get it started. It enables you to make more money as a farmer. And farmers are very into leveraging the things that they have, their land, their time, their help. And if they can take something like a mobile chicken coop, robotic chicken coop, and leverage it to produce more, more effectively and efficiently to make more money themselves, it's a really cool idea and it's a really interesting way to create a, a new source of stream of revenue and also for Purdue to help produce a new product that's in demand. Well, finally, the Wall Street Journal reporting recently that a shortage of agriculture workers in the U.S. and Europe is forcing winemakers to turn to robots for their autumn grape harvest. Brett, I've talked to a lot of winemakers, and it seems like while automation can help solve for labor shortages, there's a lot of challenges because it's expensive. And also picking wine grapes requires specialized knowledge. A lot of times you're actually bringing people in from Europe who are specialty crop harvesters for wine grapes. What's your take on it? Labor shortage is an issue that's facing the entire food system from on-farm supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. Restaurants are not staying open as long because they can't get enough people to work in them. And so the labor shortages are a real thing across the entire food vertical. It's one of our core thesis areas for our fund is investing in companies that are helping solve labor shortages or labor issues. And robotics is a big part of that. There's some real challenges to robotics on farm, especially outdoor. People don't realize how harsh of an environment it is to be outside all 
all of the time. And robotics break down. They have a lot of moving parts. You mentioned like you have to bring in experts. So how do you use how long and how much data do you need to truly train artificial intelligence to be able to accurately predict the, the, the precise time to pick a grape? That's really hard to do and it takes a lot of time. So it's not going to be an immediate solution. Plus, there's a romanticism, right, involved in sort of those grapes, especially wine grapes that you know, have been in families for generations, let's say, of of being handpicked and something very romantic about that harvest time. You're exactly right, Aditi. And I think another thing you just mentioned is the handpicking part, where robotically, it's actually very difficult to softly pick something like a grape or a strawberry. And so some of the most interesting innovation you're seeing right now is in robotic arms and how they actually do that, because it's not only the knowledge of when to pick something, but actually the physical nature, the tactile nature of, of touching that grape. And speed, right? And so it takes the argument on the speed side of robotics is that a robot can work 24-7 where a human can't, but they also right now have to pick at a much slower rate than a human being can. Speaking of robots in farms, in vertical farms, coming up, we'll hear from Matt Barnard of Plenty, who's aiming to make the world's most delicious foods and veggies in robot-operated indoor farms. Matt Barnard seemed destined to become a farmer. For one, he comes from a family of farmers in Wisconsin, seven generations and counting. But there was one slight wrinkle to his likely path. Growing up, Barnard was more drawn to technology. That passion took him from the Midwest to Silicon Valley. But after working in the wireless telecom industry, Barnard felt the call of the land in the form of a problem. How do you feed the world when resources like water and arable land are dwindling while the world's population is going up? That brought Barnard back into agriculture, but with a twist. This time he's working on a vertical farm, which he thinks is the answer to that problem. Some of the world's richest people agree. The company Barnard founded, Plenty, is a unicorn backed by SoftBank's Masa Sun, Google's Eric Schmidt, and Jeff Bezos. Through it all, Barnard's story is rooted in one simple passion, growing food sustainably to feed the world. I loved growing up on the farm. You know, we grew a couple of great fruits and vegetables for commercial sale and then a ton of uh, different things for our own uh, personal consumption. And so I really love that part. I loved the amount of exploration and things we were able to do outside and, and in the orchards as a kid. You know, at the same time, when I left, I didn't intend to ever go back professionally because, you know, what I learned growing up on the farm is that you are subject to the whims of an uncontrolled and chaotic climate such that, you know, once every 10 years, you have a great year and you'll have one or two really bad ones and then a whole host of other outcomes in between, such that no matter how hard or smart you work, you don't really have control over uh, the, the main thing that your business is re reliant on, which is that climate. So I, I left and I did a number of things, got into the technology world, and here I am several decades later, back at the thing I didn't think I'd be doing. <laughs> it's so funny how life works out, right? You actually had a really early passion for technology. How did that bear out in your childhood and as you grew up? I liked to explore. And so that led to me after I uh, graduated from college, I, I got into the wireless telecom industry. I was very attracted to this new thing as the world was working to convert from a landline to a wireless infrastructure. 
I got into to that, had a, had a great time, advanced quickly in, a, in an industry that was really just blowing up in a good way. And then moved on to, to form a small fund where we were focused on trying to invest in water technology. That was driven by an interest of mine to solve for the water system. We moved from that to cellular smart grid, which was large utility scale technology systems to damp down resource demand and spread it across the 24-hour schedule. So I did those things. And then when I looked around at what I was going to do with the next phase of my career, turned out agriculture was was it. It was the food chain because what I what I had learned was, hey, if you want to fix for the water system, you better solve for ag because that's where most of humanity's water consumption is. And so that's where I where I focused. So you solve for the thing that always drove you away from agriculture to get back into it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Large-scale utilities seems like such a far cry from agriculture. Can you walk us through what drove you to make that pivot back into agriculture, but in a different way than traditional agriculture? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing was water. As you look at the primary farming regions of the world, they are extremely water stressed. Since the electrification of the field back in the 1950s, humanity's extraction rate of water from the ground has exceeded the replenishment rate by anywhere from 50 to 300 times. And just these astronomical numbers uh, where, where we've used a thousand years worth of water in 100 years. Wow. And so as you look at that, that's the first thing that drew me to it. You decide to do this. What do you do first? How do you even go about it? <laughs> One of the super interesting things about this industry is that growing plants inside, in fact, is fairly easy. Something I like to say is that seventh graders have been doing it since the Columbian Exposition. You know, since electricity for the, for the science fair in seventh grade, they've been growing plants inside. But it's figuring out how to industrialize it, how to do it at the scale of the food chain, at the scale of humanity, at prices that people can afford. And, and in a way that is reliable, such that you can do it day in and day out. And so the things you have to invest in are, A, how do you drive down the energy cost, for example, which means you have to drive down the energy consumption and convert an electron into a calorie through photosynthesis in a plant. You have to figure out how to grow plants with as little electricity as possible and do that conversion. You can think of our, of, of our farms kind of like an energy conversion facility where we're converting those electrons into calories through photosynthesis. And so it's a series of technologies, you know, from machine learning to the, the most efficient horticultural lights in the world, uh, to highly efficient dehumidification systems. So it's solving for those things so that you can do this in a way that meaningfully moves the, the, the needle on the scale of humanity's food chain. So Matt, from a tech perspective, at the beginning, were you guys building all of your own technology? Were you trying to find the latest and greatest that you could then apply to what you needed? That answer changes over time, right? So it, at, at first, we started just with the fundamental things that, that enabled economic and highly productive growing systems inside. And so that, that was really kind of hardware. It started with Nate's work on hardware during his PhD days, getting his PhD in plant science. And, you know, he started first working to solve for people productivity in greenhouses and then realized he was solving the wrong problem. 
And so he, and so he changed. And so the thing that enables us to grow uh, on a vertical plane inside, for example, that's one of the first things that enabled a whole series of other innovations to industrialize these technologies to grow plants inside. So it first started there. And then we started to add things like robotics and how do we increase human productivity in the farm and allow for large-scale production while keeping people safe and ergonomic. So we invested in those things. And then it was, you know, start to develop algorithms and machine learning in order to understand really how to drive plant productivity far beyond where it's ever been in the field and far beyond really what's ever been done at any kind of industrial scale growing plants. When I hear you talking about it, it's so scientific. And I know that a few years ago, there was a lot of attention in the media that Plenty's grabbing a lot of people from Tesla, for instance. Do you guys think of yourselves as an agriculture company or a tech company, particularly when it comes to things like trying to get talent, for instance? Another one of the many fun things about Plenty is that we have this very diverse uh, experience set within the company. People with agriculture experience, people with plant science experience, people with medical device, automotive experience, wireless telecom experience, large utilities. There are lots of different areas of expertise that we can draw from. And that's where some of the innovation of Plenty comes from, which is bringing together many types of technologies to put together a complex but yet elegant technology stack. Applications that are similar to those in many different industries, but never have been brought together at the same time before. So yeah, we, we, have, we have people from all over, from Intel to Tesla to, like I said, the medical device industry, um, automotive and, and many others. Quite a collection of people. Your backers include Jeff Bezos, Masa-san of SoftBank. First of all, how do you even get to the point of getting in front of these folks, getting them to even call you back? Well, it's one thing builds upon the, the next. And sometimes getting one person's ear and eyes and attention helps you get the next. We managed to attract the attention of some some of the world's very best in, investors. And as they is they took a look and worked to understand as deeply as they could what we were doing. They called up some of their professional friends. And so that's how we made our way from, from one to the next and managed to meet and, and attract some of the world's um, you know, most well-known and best investors. So we were very fortunate in that regard. One of those investors is SoftBank's Masa-san, and he's very involved. You told me, what is it like to be face-to-face -face with one of the richest people in the world and then have to pitch to him. What was that like? Well, he moves fast. He forms his own conclusions fast, his own theses fast. You know, he has a force of will about him around, you know, making things happen and, uh, and, and around a particular set of both ideals and aspirations as he, he kind of hangs everything around uh, human happiness. He's quite, a, quite an individual. He's very unique in his own right, and uh, I've enjoyed working with him. You said you actually went over to his home to pitch to him, right, that first time? I did. I did. I went, I went over to his home. I actually brought one of our seven-and-a-half-foot growing towers, uh, much shorter than the ones we use today, but still, you know, unwieldy and, uh, and nearly broke uh, one of his chandeliers in his house. So 
so, something I may not try again. What was the coolest room in his home? <laughs> the coolest room. Um, After that uh, chandelier, well, he, he might not have seen the rest much of that's, the house. That's right. He, he ha- he's got one of the best boardrooms I've ever been in in his home. So that was one. The work ends up happening uh, in the dining room. So, you know, just from a what happens there perspective, the dining room might be the most interesting. And, uh, you know, the, if only those walls could talk. His very formal gardens out back actually are pretty interesting. Uh, you know, so interesting conversations get had on, on strolls through that. So it kind of depends on how you think about it. But I, 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 would, I would probably start with uh, what the walls could tell you uh, in that dining room. So did he actually taste your greens? Oh, yeah. We ate right off that tower. <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily how we might do it if we went to go do it again, but we ate right off that tower and, and that, that food was great. And um, that helps us sell it because it, it turns something that seems unreal to the real when you're walking around with these uh, plants bursting with flavor growing out of this weird vertical tower. Is anybody else picturing people literally going up to a tower and kind of eating right off of it? Like not actually picking it first and, and then putting it on a plate and eating it, but actually just going up to a tower and like trying to like playing like bobbing for apples a little bit? <laughs> no, I guess that was just me. Yeah, it was, it was finger food, you know, just people picking it right off and no, no plates, just um, uh, enjoying what they could and asking questions about it. And, and, and then, of course, going from asking questions about what's on the tower to what's not on the tower. Where are the strawberries, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of strawberries, it is, so I was lucky enough to visit this farm. I've seen it. It is really a spectacle to behold because you see these towers, I mean, so high and everything is so perfectly positioned and manicured. But we had a chance to actually taste a plenty strawberry, which is not out on the market. And it was the best strawberry I've ever had. Yeah, well, that 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 is something that is truly powerful about our farms, which is, you know, you've probably heard of a Georgia peach, you know, you've heard of a French or California strawberry, or you've heard of, you know, what the wine regions of the world are. And that's because those are the best available recipes of climate and light for those specific crops in the world. What we are able to do in a plenty farm is to not only do that, but go beyond it, right? It's, it's, you know, you, you haven't heard of a Wisconsin peach because they're just not that good. <laughs> uh, nor have you heard of a Wisconsin tomato. So what we're able to do is take the most perfect recipes that do exist, bring them into our farm, and then go way beyond what's ever been accomplishable out in a field. Because we have all of these fine grain controls now regarding climate parameters and light parameters. I mean, I've, and I've talked with multiple startups that have like pitched, you know, our lights can change the flavor of leafy greens or what are some of the cool flavor profiles or um, ways you're thinking about changing the way some of the produce or uh, fruits and vegetables that you're growing? Like what's something cool that you've seen out there? I mean, we just work to solve for human, human pleasure and enjoyment. And so what that means is Think about wine tastings or other food tastings that you may have been to, chocolate, any, any number of other things. They tend to talk about a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, you know, and to the extent that a food has a beginning, middle, and an end that are all interesting and complement one another, you've got a great eating experience there. And there are a lot of foods that just have a beginning or just an end or just a middle or they're lacking one or two of the three. And, and we get to play with that. Like if you, you think about the Dorito, for example... That takes you through a, a flavor journey. 
you know, it hits you with spice and, and some salt on the front end. And at the back, there's like a chaser. It washes it away with sugar because if you take too much of that spice on the front end and you, after three or four bites, your mouth gets exhausted and you're not going to eat any more of that. So you need, the, you need the chaser to bring you back for more. And we're now able to do those same things with fruits and vegetables, which is to, uh, you know, like a berry that is only sweet without enough acidic content to balance out that flavor. That also gets, that gets cloying and it gets cloying quickly. Whereas, you know, we can take these nutrient rich foods and make people make them the thing that people reach for rather than all of that processed stuff in the middle of the store. Well, when you hear you talking about the mission, you just you don't just think that vertical farms are a nice to have thing. You think they are imperative a necessity for the world. Why? They are absolutely necessary and inevitable at this point, because if you look at what's happened over the last half century, which most of the people on this earth have been born in that the last half century, we have doubled the population of the planet with the addition of nearly 4 billion people during that period of time, incrementally. And so we're now up to nearly 8 billion people, and we're hitting up against very real constraints relative to land, water, and carbon. We also are hitting up against very real constraints relative to our waste profile, our waste footprint. And so humanity has seen these types of challenges before, Thankfully, we are at a point where we can use technology to help to solve for some of these things. Are we there yet, though? I think that one of the pushbacks on indoor and vertical farming has always been the economics of it. It's you know far more expensive to grow a head of lettuce or a bushel of whatever versus traditional outdoor, largely because of something you touched on earlier, which is the sun is free. And it's one of the most important inputs in any farming environment. How far away are we from a technology standpoint? Yeah, well, we're, we're here today. And it's a matter of which crops, right? So every year, as the productivity of the farms increase, we're able to add more and more crops to those that are economically feasible and, and industrializable relative to the scale of the food chain. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time, just like it took a couple of decades for uh, companies like Google and Amazon to build out those data centers, for example. It takes time, and, they, and, and these farms are becoming more productive and economic over time. Uh, but the answer is they work now and they continue to work better every every year and it's moving faster all the time. Do you think that's true that within 25 years you'll change the way that people eat across the world or is that just in developed nations? I think across the world. If you look at the food chain and where people are eating on a relative scale better than others, what you'll see is that there are really only about a dozen countries in the world. There are 100, 195 total nation states, but only about a dozen that are net exporters of food uh, because of those things that we were talking about, climate and light that have been previously uncontrollable. They don't exist in recipes that are effective to farm in most nation states in most regions of the world. And so this, with the food chain being that fundamental building block of prosperity, this is an enabling technology relative to economies and elsewhere. And it's not only democratizes the food chain, but can democratize GDP per person and other things around the world as well. What piece of the indoor tech stack needs the most advancement still to continue to push the indoor farming um, movement and indoor farming industry forward? 
Well, we continue to refine our work relative to machine learning and apply it to more and more parameters of the farm, for example. There's that. Some of it, frankly, is the iteration of a team of people on the same problem year after year. You have that, the application of data acquisition and machine learning on more and more parameters of the farm. You have, you know, once we've developed the farm and the technology stack of it, we're only at the beginning, right? And then we have to become excellent operators of that farm. And so we're doing that now. We're building those muscles to become excellent operators of this extremely powerful farm that we've spent, you know, the last eight years developing. There's that as well. And then it's climate and light systems and both the software and the hardware necessary to do that as efficiently as possible. And the other part of the stack that's extremely critical is that of plant science. Those are the genetics, the plants that we're growing. We have, for example, our own tomato genetics, you know, about three dozen of our own lines that we've developed in order to help tomatoes grow more productively and efficiently inside while producing some of the most amazing tomato fruit you've ever eaten. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is reduce land footprint, water footprint, waste footprint, and carbon footprint. All right, time for lightning round. One word answers as best as you can. I'll do my best. All right. Fully autonomous farms will be commonplace in most major metros by the end of this decade. True or false? True. Outdoor farms will be fully autonomous by the end of this decade. True or false? Mostly true. Wisconsin or California? California. Aditi's daughter loves your kale. Kale <laughs> is the king of the leafy greens. Ooh. Gosh, I hate to give one so much power, <laughs> but I do love my kale, so I'll just go with yes for now. Thanks, Matt. That's all we got for you today. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Every week on Full Stack Food, we're going to invite a few startups onto the podcast to tell us what kind of problem they're solving, how they're solving it, and how they're going to take over the world. I'm here with Dan, the CEO and co-founder of Clean Crop Tech. Dan, what problem are you guys solving at Clean Crop? So Clean Crop is tackling the trillion-dollar problem of food waste and food safety drivers uh, around the world. Uh, around something close to 500 million tons of food is wasted in a given year, um, responsible for 7% of greenhouse gas emissions. And these same contaminants that drive that waste are responsible for 600 million cases of foodborne illness every year. Contaminants that cause that waste. So is the contaminant piece the problem you're solving? Yeah. So you can think about things like salmonella, E. coli, listeria. Uh, there's a huge range of toxins on grains and nuts that we address, um, but also just the sort of common yeasts and molds. So the yeast that makes your chicken smell bad, the molds that make your salad go brown. How are you solving this problem of toxins uh, that are causing this tremendous amount of food waste? So we have a breakthrough technology that combines uh, electricity with different blends of food grade gases to selectively break down these contaminants while leaving alone those things that matter for food quality. So we can tune our process to degrade salmonella while leaving alone the fats and the lipids and the micronutrients that matter for the quality of that food. 
Got it. So it's also like a safety thing. It's also it could be a food safety thing, not just a food waste thing. Yeah, we uh, it's a two birds, one stone uh, approach, which has been really compelling for most of our customers. So what's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world? Yeah, we see a huge range of applications that our technology works on, um, everything from uh, extending shelf life on meat and seafood to nuts and grains, uh, enhancing seed germination, all using the same basic technology stack and hardware. And so uh, within the next five to 10 years, we're uh, planning on becoming the Dow Chemical of plasma treatment for ag and food. Right now, I'm here with Nat, CEO and co-founder of Otrify. Nat, what problem are you solving? So here at Ultrafy, uh, we're actually solving the problem of the food industry lack of real-time and relevant information. Now, not to say that there's not in- enough information in the sector, but actually over the last 10 years, as our food sources diversify, we as consumers are demanding more and more information about the food that we eat. This, coupled with the increase in food safety regulation, has actually created way too much uh, information in this industry. And the food manufacturers and all the players in the sector actually don't have the infrastructure to meet this demand of this information increase. So as a result, they continue to rely on their email and Excel to manage the mountain of information that we want as a consumer and the regulator demands as well. All these big food enterprises out there, they need to be able to track all this paperwork. And right now they're doing it on Excel and paper and they got no idea what's going on. How are you solving this problem? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So now, we, we're going to go with two-step approach. The first, uh, we're actually really focusing on the workflow tool. That's a basic platform that we provide uh, to our customers where they can now kind of start their work uh, to manage all this compliance uh, a lot faster and easier. The second for us is we're actually really focusing on investing on the latest AI models in the obstacle character recognitions uh, in order to extract information efficiently from the documents uh, that we receive. That leads into my last question, which is, how are you going to take over the world? Like, I'm imagining that's a part of your big vision, but tell me more. Yeah, definitely. So, so Brad, I think anyone in the food industry probably would be familiar with the FDA recall website. On an annual basis, there are 10, 10 of thousands of product lines uh, being made to the end consumer before they need to be recalled. Ultrafire is going to make that number to become a fraction of what it is today. And that's how we're going to do it. So going back to our original question, guys, are vertical farms a need or a want? What do you think? I mean, I think it's still to be determined, to be honest. There's going to be continued improvement on yields from traditional farming. And so just like historically, there always has been. One of the things you've seen throughout history is that population growth tends to align well with availability of nutrients, including food. And so that'll be interesting to track and see how we continue down that path. Steph, I can't get out of my head what he said about the Doritos and there being a beginning, middle, and end to that taste profile. I had no idea there was sweetness at the end of my eating a Dorito. That's probably why I'm addicted to them. Oh, no idea. I mean, as we've discussed, my taste buds of a a (laughs) five-year-old. That's not a bad thing. Cool Ranch or Nacho Cheese Doritos? Nacho Cheese. Nacho Cheese. Oh, I'm going to go Cool Ranch. You guys are wrong. I mean... Those are fighting words. Can you go wrong with Doritos? No, any Doritos is a good (laughs) new tagline. Uh, Next week, we'll be talking about Girl Scout cookies, Thin Mints, or the Samoas slash Caramel Delights. Don't answer next time. (laughs) It's a great tease, Aditi. (laughs) See you back here next week. Samoas. Samoas.